people discount, I think, how much work it is to properly go out and hire. First, understand the role. That's something that I've learned too, is like we spend probably the first month, two to three weeks at least understanding the role, having, you know, 10, 20 conversations with people that are experts in there and like, what level should they be? What background should they be? What's the interview loop look like? Because you're not going to get the best person in there unless you can speak their language, unless you really understand what you're looking for and what they would do. Right. And then it's the hiring, then it's the great loop and making sure you're not cutting corners, then it's onboarding them. So like you said, having someone do that for a few months and just making sure you understand what you need to do next, I think prevents you from making a lot of mistakes down the road. Hi there, this is Vijay Damoji Parapu, and you're listening to the B2B Go-To-Market Leaders Podcast. The show where I go behind the scenes with top go-to-market practitioners to discuss their mindset and tactics. Hello, everyone. Welcome to yet another episode of the B2B Go-To-Market Leaders Podcast. Today, I have with me Ross Rich, who is the founder and CEO of Eckard, Y Combinator alum, and who is in the go-to-market, MarTech, sales tech, customer support, customer success tech, tech stack, depending on which lens you want to put on. But that's one of my core and favorite areas, which is the whole GTM tech stack and super excited about your story, Ross, and I'm sure we'll dive a lot more. So first of all, a very, very warm welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. Excited to dive in today. Yeah, absolutely. Again, I always start off with this signature question with all my guests because I want to deliver value to my audience first up, which is how do you define go-to-market? It's a tough question because so much of a company now, with especially if you have product-led growth, I think it's there's kind of two answers, right? If you have your sales and marketing team and then they sell someone and then they go into the product, I define it as the sales and marketing side. But as soon as you bridge both of those in and you think about retention and NRR and all of those great things, it's really the whole company outside of just the R&D side of things. So it's a startup. It's your entire company. If you have part of your product that's driving growth, which almost is true with any company now, you know, it has to do with your retention and, and customer success. So that's kind of how I, how I like to think about it. Yep, especially for the PLG-focused companies as yours is, you think about product first, but then very quickly and importantly, you need to pivot to the customer and the user. Because for example, I mean, even for PLG strategy-focused companies, again, it depends and you need to focus on, okay, how do you quickly deliver value to your user first up? Again, it's user-focused, right? Buyer-focused as well. And then how do you deliver Hopefully, you get to a virality effect and then a repeat usability. All of this, again, coming back to that buyer and the user, knowing that person, he or her, very well. Yeah. And that's part of your go-to-market, right? Yeah. It's the product you're building everything. So, yeah. Yeah. Huge part of the go-to-market. That is one core component. So, again, I, I listened to quite a few podcasts this morning. I was listening to another podcast where it was the founder and CEO of, I think the company was Intelimize if I got that right. And his focus, again, it was all again, boiling down to customer focus. Absolutely. But the go-to-market strategy is sales-led. But in your case, it's a product-led go-to-market strategy. Would you agree with that? Yeah, for us, it's a bit of a mix. For Accord in particular, 
it's not self-serve freemium in terms of like, Hey, you can go on, you get set up and then we'll ring you up if you get past a certain limit, like a loom or Figma or something like that. But it's, Hey, you get a free trial. You can play around. You can actually use the product before you decide to buy, which feels about right in 2021, the new company starting out, but that you're guided, you're assisted by an expert in the space. That's kind of like a, you know, hopefully a consultant and giving you best practices and what we've been learning to make you even more successful. So it's a mix of, I think salespeople can be super helpful, but that's not how buyers just want to buy today. They don't want to be led by a salesperson alone. They want to be assisted and how do you bridge both the need for people to play around with the product and validate themselves, but also get that expertise and advice from someone who knows what they're talking about? Yes, it's a salesperson, but with a very customer success mindset and customer success yeah. oriented. Fantastic. So I'm sure we'll dive a lot more during our conversation. But next up, uh, can you tell to our listeners and share with all of us your story your personal professional journey. It's your story and what led you to what you do today and who you serve. So originally from Toronto, Ontario, Canada. So born and raised Canada. I went to school on the West Coast on Vancouver Island, beautiful place and studied business. And my dream job after starting school there was to be in the music industry. So I was managing artists. My brother and I started our first company together that was putting on events and bringing in artists that were touring across Canada and the US, um, hosting fundraisers. So just like very involved in the music and entertainment industry. And then somehow got my dream job after school at Columbia Records. So mm-hmm. working with artists like Calvin Harris, Snoop Dogg, Omi, Pharrell, et cetera, on album releases and songs and tours and all this kind of stuff. And that was like, you know, the dream and quickly learned that that wasn't for me longer term. I just found the culture of the industry, sadly, was like, I just didn't see myself working in this industry Mm. for 40 more years. After the first year, it was like, wow, like I saw a lot of egos and just the way of working was very bureaucratic, surprisingly for such a creative industry and ended up actually finding a job in San Francisco. I actually moved there before I had the job. I did about 40 interviews with recruiter screens, kind of looked up like the top early stage companies and wanted to be at a company where I was going to be one of the first salespeople. Okay. I was like, you know, looking at sub 25, 50 people companies exclusively and somehow ended up at Stripe. <laughs> yeah. I don't know yeah. how luck, et cetera, but it was 2015 and they started to hire business and salespeople, the first years was purely self-serve selling to basically, you know, tiny startups, founders, SMBs, et cetera, adding on a sales team and luckily ended up being one of those first hires. And it's kind of what drew me into, you know, tech sales and, you know, this whole idea of building repeatable go-to-market engines and yeah, the love of the deal. And so did that for about five years and then founded Accord with my brother just under two years ago. That's what kind of brought me here. So kind of a circuitous, like very random path from Canadian university and putting on events and concerts there to Columbia Records in LA and New York to Stripe and APIs and payments and fintech to a yeah sales technology platform with Accord. So that's been my personal journey so far. Fantastic. So first of all, you've done a pretty good job summarizing your entire career in what, two, three minutes. So kudos to you on that. But it's amazing. I mean, you start off with something in the music industry, which is very creative. Of course, it, you can draw the lines and connect the dots from music industry to sales. I get that yeah. part. But then what led you to sales in tech? And yeah, what led you to that? 
I mean, you don't have many options when you're a few years out of school <laughs> and the only experience you have is in music and you want to, you know, be in the professional space. Yeah. So I was like, okay, I'm good at working with people, all that kind of stuff, even before the company that I had in university and, and at Columbia Records. So I was like, okay, maybe a junior sales role would kind of be a good foot in the door. What I wanted the opposite, which was like a not slow, you know, I wanted a fast moving company early stage to be able to be part of the strategy, which seemed to be the tech world. So that's kind of what led me to focus on tech. And then, yeah, the real reason I joined Stripe over the 39 other companies I had interviewed with and was really the team that I met there. I was like, wow, this group of people seem insanely overqualified. These incredible, you know, senior people and just like super talented folks from Google and Twitter. And this was, you know, this was seven years ago, all these other earlier stage companies. And I was like, wow, you guys are joining this small startup that, you know, I'd never heard of before and all this stuff and like selling APIs and FinTech and all, like it wasn't proven out at the point right. at the time yet. And I was like, okay, I just need to be around this group of people. I'm going to learn so much. And it seems like a great time and opportunity to do this. And within a few weeks, a couple of months, I was hooked. I'm like, okay, this is what I'm going to do for the next, you know, X number of years. That's really what led me to joining Stripe. It wasn't as thoughtful as you like think, okay, I looked at the market and what's going to be growing and fin and tech and whatever APIs and the decentralization of paint and all this stuff. I was like, okay, this is the most amazing group of people that I've spoken with and met with. And this is the right, right ship to be on. Yeah, absolutely. Key point. So for all you listeners out there, I think the key takeaway, don't overthink, but there are one or two points that Ross mentioned, right? One is the group of people. Team. Be sure. Yeah, yeah team. Smart people, overqualified. I wouldn't say overqualified, but really smart people, a top tier, the cream. Just look at the opportunity of working with them, being yeah. with them and learning, is a team. Yeah, optimized and learning. for learning. Yeah, exactly. It's That's what I optimized those. for. And yeah, let me in the right direction. Exactly. And money will follow. I mean, once you optimize for these two things, money will follow. And that's what led you to starting your own. I mean, prior to that, I think you applied for the Y Combinator. Yeah, we yeah. got into YC when we started Accord. Tell me your story around what got you into thinking around the pain point. You've been doing sales. You've done fantastically well for yourself. But what was the transition and shift from being an employee? Nothing wrong with that. But again, being an employee in sales to, hey, there is a bigger problem I want to solve. I want to start a company around this. This is pretty organic. Just starting a record from my time at Stripe. There's two main things that I had on the top of my mind that I was very passionate about at Stripe. One was you know, going from being one of the first sales and business hires to a massive 400 global person sales team and doing the deals myself. So from the team perspective, the challenge was always, how do we get... you know, We'd break into a new market, new product, et cetera. How do you get everyone else that we're going to bring on to understand what that motion looks like? We went through all the repetitions, all the lost deals, the learnings, the million conversations... How do you get that and that process to the rest of the folks? And that was a big challenge. And you know, I was one of the leading reps there and would work on the new segment or the new product. And I found it so challenging. There was never a great solution testing out, you know, Google Docs or Confluence or Sheets or bring in trainers or, you know, the classic old school laminates and bring in, you know, all that kind of stuff. It never really was effective way for other folks to understand what the process should look like, what meetings you should have, what resources you should share when what stakeholders you should loop in at different parts of the team, what expectations you should be setting, like these details that really make a difference that every new rep just has to learn. That was one side of it, these building these playbooks, these go-to-market playbooks and, and how to effectively work with customers throughout the buyer journey. And the second one was really just the 
collaboration with customers. I found that, you know, I'd hacked together this system that I built, this operating system of like shared Slack channels and Google Docs and sheets and presentations and templated emails. And, you know, it was an effective way of being very transparent and collaborating with my customers through all these shared workspaces. But it felt very like one-off and across a lot of different things. And it felt like there should be a solution, a software for this, where there's Jira internally for a lot of the product teams, and there's Figma for design, and there's GitHub for engineering. Why is there something for such a collaborative organization, which is sales? There's nothing for that internally as well as externally with the customer. So kind of combining both of those, the challenge of building this repeatable sales process, as well as working with customers transparently kind of birthed the idea of Accord, this customer-facing collaboration platform for sales and onboarding. There should be something that is templatized that everyone can use and, and customize from there. And there should be something that is collaborative with customers. So that was kind of the, again, like wasn't like, you know, sitting in, how do I think of startup ideas? It was like, what am I doing today? What are the challenges that I've ran into? And what do I think would be helpful for the next person in my position? I think the key point for all the listeners is, yes, as much as you so want to create your own company, but that will not be and should not be the driving force. Yes, you can have that in the back of your mind, but just unwind and let the problem percolate and let that seed thought grow into something bigger. That's what I see in yours, right? It's not that, hey, it's not that, hey, okay, I'm at Stripe. I'm doing really well. And it's not about arrogance that, you know what? I'm the best in the world. I'm going to create a company. It's not that attitude at all versus there's a playbook. There is a bigger gap in the space, specifically around the sales organization and the buyers. Today, why is there more of a vendor-buyer relationship versus a partner relationship? Similarly, I'd add like, what is your passion? Like that's the thing you're going to be most successful at. Say you do want to start a company and like, that's the thing that you want to do next. It's not going to be looking at the market. I don't think as an investor, I think it's going to be looking at it as a human. And what are you most passionate about? That's the thing that you're going to be most curious about and have the most unique perspective on to solve problems for people than necessarily just like, oh, this space is hot right now. I can make a lot of money off this type of business model. Like everyone's thinking like that. That's not going to be the unique next insight that you have as a person. It's going to be from what you're passionate about. Yep. Totally. Fantastic. So let's switch gears and more on the lighter side of things on a lighter note. How do your parents actually view or understand or say what you do? I mean, you guys are unique in the sense it's you and your brother who started this company. (laughs) It's not that often and not a common theme, but how do your parents view that or tell others as to what you guys do? As to what we do? Yeah. I think my dad really deeply understands this because he was an entrepreneur, but a salesperson at heart, he did sales for 10, 15 years before starting his company. And he worked with clients every day and understands, you know, like, although they didn't have collaborative workspaces, but the importance of building those relationships and collaboration and transparency to create the best partnerships, how would they describe it? I don't know. I think to most of their friends, they'd be like, our kids are doing some tech thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so something in sales. A technology company. It's helping salespeople do stuff. Yeah. How did you decide between your brother and yourself as to who will be the CEO and the CTO? How did you guys figure that out? It was pretty organic. So when we were doing music back in the day, I feel like the natural roles, my brother is, I would say, much more creative than me. And he was always doing like the music production, like the recording stuff, all that kind of those pieces and just had more of like a kind of product engineering mind than myself. And I was more of like the external, like marketing and all that kind of stuff. So when it came to starting a chord, when we started working on it together, 
he naturally started to think about like, what is this thing going to look like and designing it and thinking more about the product side. Mm -hmm. I feel like I was more of the like, Hey, we're having a hundred conversations with sales reps, CEOs, you know, CROs, VPs of sales, et cetera, of what their feedback's going to be. So it's kind of this like organic partnership of he was starting to build out the wireframes and the mock-ups and prototypes. And I was out there trying to understand the market. And that yeah. kind of developed pretty organically into like I was the external rich brother and he was right. the internal rich brother in terms of working <laughs> with the RD team. And I was out there talking to the first customers and recruiting. So yeah, that's kind of how it pretty organically happened. And it is just you as a co-founder or did you have anyone else? Yeah. So we have another co-founder. Definitely wouldn't be here without him. Wayne Pan. He's our CTO. So my brother's CPO, I'm CEO. Yeah. And he is like multi-time founder. You know, he's an amazing engineer leader, has led teams up to like 30, 40 engineer people, has also led like product design engineering orgs. It's like the whole yeah. R&D org, very holistic perspective on that, similar to like what we were talking about, the go-to-market side on, on sales and marketing. And yeah, he's started a couple other companies before, one that was invested in by Sequoia that sold to LinkedIn. And he's really been in a lot of ways, like the shepherd for us on our first founding journey and really loves to build teams and like the operating system of a company and that foundation, which I feel like a lot of times with younger, early first time CEOs, like myself, my brother is some of the biggest complaints from mm-hmm. employees and other stuff is like, how do you do this? What is the foundation? What does the start of the week look like? And the wrap ups and the Q, you know, quarterly kickoffs and retros. And he's just like super thoughtful about all of those pieces of the company I and mean, culture and team building, which has been super awesome. Fantastic. Um, yeah. You're missing that. Yeah. That's a core component, right? Especially when you are building the team and doing fundraising early on. It is, yes, you need to have, I mean, with one founder, it's super, super tough. It's not that it can't be done. It's super, super tough. Right. Totally. And then if you go on to the other extreme, which is four or five co-founders, that's Too a big no. That's a big no for sure. Yeah. Right. And I think kudos to you and your brother to identify someone who's stronger on the product and the engineering side. Now, did you guys and Bain work together earlier or how do you guys come to know of each other? Yeah, it was pretty crazy. It was an intro from one of our first like pre-seed investors, like one of the first people to commit money to the crazy idea that was Accord. He, Bob Rosen, he was leading Stripe's partnerships team when I met him and they happened to overlap. I think both of their companies at some point were acquired by LinkedIn and they happened to overlap there. And so when I asked Bob, who do you know? It was like, oh, I happened to catch up with Wayne the other day. It was like super random, like haven't caught up in years. And it was just like perfect timing. I think from the first conversation to like deciding to work together must've been like, you know, single digit business days for such a huge decision. Right. And it just felt super right. You know, like I think personalities melded really well and the vision of the culture and type of company we wanted to build just like very, very aligned. I think one of the first things that Wayne said when we were talking, I was talking to him, asking him how he thought about the company building, et cetera. It was like the quote from Steve Jobs around hire really smart people and get out of their way type thing. And, yeah. and you know, empowering people to, you know, I was just like that. Okay. So few people, I feel like really live that. And that's exactly what the you know, type of team we try to build. No, it's, it's almost like, uh, I don't know. Have you heard of this book or read this book, Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill? Of course. Yes. Okay. Wow. I, <laughs> I would be surprised if you said, hey, I didn't hear that. that. Yeah. So, so it's almost like that, right? When something is really strong, the universe actually conspires to make it happen. 
Totally. It, it's exactly that. Yeah. It's exactly that. All right. So enough of the loosey goosey and gooey stuff. So and it's funny you mentioned that we were just talking about manifesting like all last <laughs> week at the company. So it's really <laughs> funny that you bring that up. We manifested it. Exactly. Wonderful. <laughs> so let's talk about Eckhart. I mean, tell me about your product. Who do you serve? How you built the business? Where you guys are at today? Yeah. So Super high level to summarize first, sure. Accord. So as a customer-facing collaboration platform for B2B sales, onboarding, and success. The idea is the core of it, if you've heard of like mutual action plans before in mm-hmm. sales, a shared plan of next steps, timelines, milestones. We add in resources, team members, summary of the deal to make yeah. it really easy for everyone involved on both the buying and the selling side to understand what the deal is very transparently setting the right expectations across the board. So that's kind of the idea. And we sell to, we mainly work with high growth startups all the way from, you know, we're working with some seed and series A companies all the way to the likes of of Figma. We work with their enterprise sales team pretty closely. So across the gamut, I would say that where we help companies most is in the kind of high touch multi-stakeholder project management side of the deal. When you have a lot of people coming in, maybe it's product, engineering, design, finance decision makers, you need to keep everyone in the loop. Um, Pre-sales with maybe it's risk or compliance or legal and all that kind of stuff. And post-sales, hey, what does it actually look like to roll this out across the company successfully? And how do you build a repeatable motion around both of that pre-sales and onboarding? Making sure there's smooth handoffs, making sure you're setting the right expectation for your customer. That's kind of the the area that we play in and, and to start focus on technology companies who are the early adopters of new tech like Accord. I'm super excited about what you guys are doing, right? So think of it this way. You got collaborative platforms internally. Now we are doing that for an external audience and specifically for sales and buyers. Exactly. Everyone knows how helpful Asana is and money.com. Yeah. Like all of these things have been wildly successful notion for years, Correct. but there's Correct. nothing that's built to work externally with partners, customers, buyers, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Good stuff. So talk to us about the go-to-market. I mean, you did mention about high growth scale-up startups. Are you looking at geographies? Are you looking at verticals? And what is your go-to-market motion like? Yeah, that's a really good question. It's been evolving. So the thing that I was familiar with was more of a top-down, you know, mid-market, upper mid-market enterprise deal from my yep. time at Stripe. I know, you know, at the end of it, I was working on one or two deals across, you know, 12, 18 months. I knew that motion and made sense for something like Stripe because you're ripping out your entire revenue engine and you're putting in Stripe. So for deals like that, it's not like you're going to do 5% of your payments, like all the work gets done and you shift it over, which is very different than something like Accord where you could have a sales rep or a manager bring this in a small part of the organization and test out on one deal or one segment and all that kind of stuff. So I've really had to learn a lot about product-led growth and understanding how our buyers really want to buy. It's, it's been super organic in terms of how we've thought about and matured our go-to-market motion. To start, it was me talking to anyone in my network about right. this idea. Yep. And so the curious conversations turn into your first users. So that's really how it started with the first you know, 5, 10 users. It's just like talking to people and asking for you know, friends of friends who would be interested yep. in this. It's, it's very similar of, to fundraising, right? It's the same thing yep. with the customers, friends and family first, and then go wider. 
Exactly. So started there. And then what really, you know, when we started getting into the public and beyond just that network was this last February when we did our seed raise announcement, which, you know, went on TechCrunch, got a great reach there. It was really interesting because we first moved from us going to certain people and our assumptions to what is going to come back from the market. Mm -hmm. When you send it out into the world, who are the people that this is going to resonate with? And it was interesting because it wasn't just, you know, the people, sales leaders, VPs of sales CEOs. It was a lot of sales reps, managers, and even smaller seed series A companies and mainly selling to like series B, C above. And I was like, oh, wow, there is, I guess, this you know, interest from not necessarily what would be a top-down sell, but some people that just want to like click around more on the product. So yeah. what we did, we shifted in the next few months to a free trial motion and messaging more for these earlier stage, like series A, high growth, you know, when you're going from your first three to five reps to 10 to 20 to 50, right. how do you make sure you have the right motion to scale? And that seemed to be like a really, really great point. And before you had all these systems in place, harder to rip out something than to start with something like a cord. So that's where we shifted to, had way more interest in terms of like the click-through rate of the website from request to demo to actually mm-hmm. starting with the free trial and giving someone the custom workspace. And we're even looking to double down on that thing about what's an individual plan that people can start with. So it's kind of been from the full tops down to the free trial sale to now even looking at other ways of getting just the product in people's hands with less friction and thinking about how does this specific type of person in this market, at this stage company, in this role, want to evaluate and thinking through that lens. So, Yeah. It goes back to you got your earlier hypotheses or experiences. You went to top down and then thanks to the seed round, the press coverage and everything else, you got good publicity, good coverage. And that led to the reach or outreach from market to you guys. Exactly. That changed. The validation from the market. And it's something that that's probably been, when people ask my biggest learning, like that's probably been my biggest learning of starting a company and startups is, Yes, you can have your hypothesis. You can be an expert in the space for years. If it's a new type of product, a new category, you're not going to know until it comes back from the market for your assumptions and having opportunities like that. Like, like, and then for our GA launch and through product time, we got another set of that and refined it. And you're only going to be successful, I think, if you think about it in terms of market first, not product first. Correct. Or the sales process first. Correct. And that's probably the biggest learning from this experience so far. Yeah. Yeah. Again, it's amazing, right? It's all first principles and foundation. But unless yeah. you go through it, you won't really know how to apply it. <laughs> and you'll exactly. maybe make the early mistakes, which is just the theory is one thing. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> that's why they say launch, you know, launch quickly. And it's not just like get the product out there and start selling quickly. It's get into the market and start to get those data points back to you as early as possible. You're going to go down building the wrong thing or a muscle around certain processes that aren't going to be the things that get you to success. So, but how do you know? I mean, you might get that initial traction, but how do you know that this is your time, at least for the next one, two years? You don't, you don't know. I think that's the answer of all this stuff and like why it's so challenging and it's so much instinct and you need to be able to be wrong and be nimble. And that's also one of the biggest learnings is, you know, we went out, it was this growth, you know, focused on these like later stage growth companies we're getting this feedback back, a ton of interest. They're doing evaluations. These are the blockers. And then we do this lot and we oh, this seemed a lot easier. Maybe it's not right. We'll test it out. Okay. We did both of them for a quarter. Yeah. And I was like, okay, well, this is where we're winning. This is where we're getting the most usage. 
we have to double down at some point. Let's make another big bet on this. And if in three to six months, that's wrong. Okay. Let's make sure we're thinking, you know, thinking holistically, but like that kind of like stop and start of, you know, you need to be doing things a lot and heads down, but then you need to come in that kind of balance, I think is the right way. Cause we could have been wrong about the adjustment. It could have been like, Oh, just because it's TechCrunch, And that was right. the readership you saw a lot right. from there. And yeah. it could have actually been totally wrong. And you should have continued going after this other market. You don't know. Okay. So, Based on this initial data, you need to make hiring decisions. So for example, let's say you're building out a marketing team. You say, hey, this is the segment I'm going to go after. This is our go-to-market, and this is the one, two, three-person marketing team. Now, are you going down that path? And how are you thinking about building your marketing, which is a core component of go-to-market? We took a different approach there. So we actually, because we spent so much time the first year plus just building out the product and working super closely with customers instead of going out there and building up the team and spending, yeah. we actually had my brother, who was our CPO, shift to for the first X number of months to marketing because he understood, you know, he was the expert, he was the salesperson. Yeah. Instead of doing that, it was like, okay, someone with more intuition on this to figure that out. And I think that was super key to us getting those data points back and being able to do it super quickly. It didn't have to go out and put together a JD, interview all the candidates, right. get them to ramp up on everything that we've done. That would have been the time that it took us to run those experiments Correct. and really confirm that market, you need to be sure about that before you start scaling. And we took a very similar approach to the sales team. I mean, I wish we had one person, but when we did the launch in, in February of last year with the seed announcement, like we were just inundated with these conversations. It was myself and my colleague, Danny, who's kind of doing everything at the time, CS operations, sales, et cetera. And it was just us and everyone needed to jump on calls. We had our engineers and Wayne and Ryan, everyone jumping on these calls, but I'm glad that we could really get those early learnings in first before we understood who's the right marketing team and sales team to start building. Then Correct. we kind of doubled down and we hired our first two folks that were like more experienced generalists could also help figure it out. We didn't look at like, okay, now let's bring on five people to do this. It's like, let's bring on two other people, help us continue to figure this out. Correct. And then once two other people can sell, then you bring on the next, you know, five, 10 people. So that's kind of how we've approached the team building side of go to market. I think that, makes total sense, right? Especially in that high growth early stage, like where you guys are at, it's all hands on deck. You need to shift across roles. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Yes, you might be an engineer formally, but you need to jump into marketing or even sales or even customer success. It doesn't matter. Once you've seen that play out in like three, six months, okay, now you know, hey, this is a time when we need to hire someone full-time. People discount, I think, how much work it is to properly go out and hire. First, understand the role. That's something that I've learned too, is like we spend probably the first month, two to three weeks, at least understanding the role, having, you know, 10, 20 conversations with people that are experts in there and like, what level should they be? What background should they be? What's the interview loop look like? Cause you're not going to get the best person in there unless you can speak their language, unless you really understand what you're looking for and what they would do. Right. And then it's the hiring then it's the great loop and making sure you're not cutting corners Then it's onboarding them. So like you said, having someone do that for a few months and just making sure you understand what you need to do next, I think, prevents you from making a lot of mistakes down the road. And how are you thinking about budget? I mean, obviously, I don't want you to reveal the exact numbers, but ballpark percentages, especially where you are in terms of growth. And benchmarks, we all know, they typically say like 10 to 20%, especially for marketing. I mean, sales, it's mostly headcount. So how are you thinking around those for the marketing budget? Yeah. Our thoughts on early marketing has been very similar to all the kind of same framework that we've used for every other piece of the business has been like, make sure we are nailing really the positioning and messaging 
and experiment around that before accelerating the spend. Right. Yeah. It's like, and then that's playing to like a lot of the organic stuff, right? You can tell from what you post on LinkedIn or your newsletter or lighter tests on persona. And, you know, even outbound is a great way to really quickly get the feedback back, making sure you're focused on the right stuff. So when you spend 10, 20, 30 K a month, you're really sure that's kind of the approach that we've taken. So we're just starting to ramp our first ad spend, but I think we've spent a lot more time on thinking about what is exactly the problem we're solving. How do they think about it today? What are the keywords, the percent, all of that kind of stuff. Again, taking that kind of approach to things. And then hopefully we feel very comfortable putting in a ton of money and it's super efficient coming back. Yeah. When are you ever going to catch up on that though? You can't as a business, as soon as you start hiring multiple people and have the spend and start getting those leads in, you're never going to go back and foundationally fix things. You just start growing too fast and there's more people and more processes. Correct. So taking that extra, you know, 20%, 30% time, I think pays off in terms of building a very efficient go-to-market engine. Yeah. Again, it goes back to reinforcement, right? Which is first of all, you do things that won't scale. It's counterintuitive. You need to do things that won't scale first, totally. then yeah, exactly. get your formula right. And then you yeah. can pump in the money. Because you're never going to start doing things that scale to figure it out, right? To experiment. Correct. Because yeah, exactly. So another controversial topic in the industry, which is around SDRs. Who do they report to and why? Is it marketing Great or question. sales? I think so. Foundationally, I don't know. I haven't spent much time thinking about it because I didn't have to because one of the first salespeople we brought in had been building out for the last 10 years, SDR teams, full cycle okay. sales yeah. SDR teams. So from outbound to close. Yep. So when we, and we brought in a demand generation marketing lead who has never ran SDR teams. So maybe longer term at a core that changes, but for the small team that we have today, it's very clear. You give that function to the person that's done it successfully exactly. over 10 years, and then you figure it out later. So if I had to say, honestly, philosophically, it feels more close to marketing than sales, because it's also to say, it depends on how you think about the SDR role. If an SDR role is solely just generating demand, I think this has to do with a lot of average contract value at a company. If it's very big business, you're trying to just break into accounts. You're maybe pairing them up with an account executive. That feels like more of marketing. You're starting the conversation. Whereas if it's maybe a lower ACV and they can get on, they can actually help close the deal or get it further. Right. Because that's the type of product and sales motion is it feels more sales. So I think it really depends on the type of product and sale it is, I would say. I, again, I would say if they can contribute more to the deal and they can have that conversation and it's like less of an enterprise, like 12-month thing, I hate handoffs. I hate as a, as a buyer, I handoffs. As a seller, I hate handoffs. The missing context, all that stuff. Yep. I'd rather have them go full cycle. But you just can't do that if you're trying to get into a 500K million dollar deal. You can't afford to have SDRs do that motion. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that though. Yeah. So here's my thought process, right? I mean, being pragmatic is one thing. It also depends on the personnel that you have on your team. So in your case, you have like the sales leader who's run SDR team. Okay. You give it to that person compared to a dimension who has minimal experience. I get that practical, pragmatic piece, but there is the other piece, which is more of a mindset starting with the leadership, Mm. which is how are you seeing SDRs or BDRs? Again, it all going, goes back to how are you serving your buyer the best way? Okay, yeah. Are the SDRs or the BDRs, first of all, is it outbound or inbound? 
we start with that. That's the first thing. I mean, do they handle outbound? I was assuming this is all outbound SDO. Okay. That's one thing. The second is, are they more into appointment setting mindset, which means, hey, I need to give so many meetings, so many leads, SQLs or even MQLs, it doesn't matter. That's a whole different discussion. But how many meetings do I need to give to my account executive team? That's a very short-term thinking. Again, it's more of, hey, it's me versus what's right for the buyer. Of course, there are a lot of variables around contract and sales cycle, but honestly and sincerely for me, especially that I've run marketing teams, I believe that it should be within marketing. That handoff is happening and only when it's almost vetted out to a discovery phase, then you pass it to your account executives to take it forward through, okay, is there a good fit getting into like a contract discussion and then the close, but that's just me. Yeah, it's interesting. My only issue with that is, is I'm picturing myself as a customer. If it's outbound, I have that conversation. I do discovery. Then I'm talking to someone and it's like, what about that context? It's like less efficient to have maybe the AE join and to jump in there or even to tag team it. But if I'm the customer, I want to make sure that the context is carried forward and maybe you can solve that with like a very smooth handoff somehow. I haven't experienced that as a buyer ever. That's my personal perspective. So, so here's my thing, right? My philosophy and how I approach marketing is absolute alignment with sales. Yeah. Again, it goes back to the buyer experience. And if we do have SDRs reporting into marketing, SDR is responsible for the buyer experience right? He or she has to work with that account executive. It's not like, hey, I'm done. Now it's your job. Throw it across the wall. Yeah. That should not be the mindset at all. I agree. It's just, in practice, I guess we haven't worked together. Maybe if we had worked together, I'd feel differently. <laughs> yeah. Folks I've worked with, I mean, especially the sales leaders, they all attest to the fact that I'm someone who gets and who believes in the alignment piece versus yeah. typically marketing sales is at loggerheads. That, that, I know, that was one of the biggest things when we were hiring our first marketer. That was like one of the biggest things we were testing for. And the first conversation with, after my screen was with our sales leader, because yeah. it was so important to find someone especially so early on. It's not like you're building your thing. It's art. It's like, there's nothing that yeah, exists exactly. yet. You need to build it together. And yeah, I'm super proud of how I'm seeing, you know, the closest partnership isn't it's between them right now. I'm seeing on the go-to-market team, which is great. Yeah. All right. One final question within this whole 2021, 22, and then we'll go into the last section, which is obviously you're in this, you want to create a category. I mean, pretty much talk to any founder, they want to create a category, but hey, it's not in our hands. Okay. It's again, goes back to what is the market saying? Market. Yeah. Okay. So if you were to talk to your marketing and sales, right, what would you say, tell them that, hey, this is actually working? Like what will be the one, two, three objectives for 2022? And how will you approach your whole category creation playbook? And by the way, I've seen the resources that you guys have put together. And for me, I've, I've done research around the winning CMOs. I think I mentioned this to you earlier, right? Which is around content. It's around community and it's around experiences slash events. It's these three things. And the winning go-to-market leaders do this extremely well in sequence, not that they're spreading themselves thin, right? So how will you apply or how are you thinking broadly? I, I just give you some pointers and some time to think about that answer, your response. 
one thing that's really important from like the sales go to market motion, I think is like the efficiency around having both this way of enabling individual reps and managers and earlier stage founders to like start using a cord before we necessarily like have a sale to a team, combining that with an efficient and selling into those companies and kind of making that bet super early on in 2022 and as a company to pay off not even maybe in, in next year, but the following year and the year after. And I think you've seen a number of companies do this super, super well. I think that's a key part of the strategy moving forward is, is that really big bet in terms of mixing that bottoms up and figuring out what the top down is for larger companies. So both how do we go even kind of lower and have that motion, which is going to be more marketing product led, as well as build our muscle around that more like larger growth deal and selling into those multi-stakeholders. It's sales enablement, ops, managers, executive sponsors, the reps that are saying, okay, so those are two big pieces. And then kind of the other piece I think is what you're referring to, which is how are we seen as the thought leader when it comes to building repeatable sales and onboarding process for early stage companies? How is Accord the answer for, when you think about other companies, Stripe's a, it's a fintech API, but they're thought of as the best practices in terms of like the engine is the most developer-friendly tool. Correct. Again, Accord is a collaborative workspace between buyers and sellers, but how are we seen as the people that best understand how to solve this? And that's why the CEOs, VPs of sales or other people come to us is like, they're going to help me solve this problem. Yes, this is the solution, but they're thinking from the problem first. And and that core problem, I think, is ubiquitous across pretty much every B2B company. So I think those are some of the key things that I think about, like overall for 2022, how we do that, probably a variety of different ways. But there are things that you can measure. There are things you cannot measure. This is one of those things. It's you want the market to perceive you in such a way. Yeah. Right. You can do surveys. You can do brand recall experiments. You can do what statement recall experiments or problem statement recall experiments. And who do they associate with around those things? So, uh, yeah, again, it, it's a gray area. That, that's something that I'm trying to wrap my head around as well, which is category creation. Sure, every founder wants that. But how do you know that you're actually creating a category? It's an interesting question. I love the book Play Bigger that's about category creation, if you've read that. Yeah, I'm read reading it. that. That's nighttime reading book, Play Bigger. It's amazing. I love it. it. Yeah, It is. Fantastic. So last couple of questions to you is, who do you lean on or what resources do you lean on? Is it community? Is it maybe investors or a peer founders? Who do you lean on? Yes, you got the Y Combinator community for sure. Is it podcasts? Is it books? What do you lean on to get ideas? First and foremost is like my intense routine. I'm a very routine-driven person and making sure I can sometimes get out of whack with that. But I think that I'm functioning best when I'm getting up and going to bed at the same time. When I'm going to bed, I'm putting away my phone a couple hours before and reading and journaling and getting up and doing a run with my dog and a workout and yoga and all that kind of stuff. I think that's like the number one kind of support system and routine that I've built in. Again, sometimes, you know, life and things get busy and it's like, okay, this week is going to be a tough one and I have to put it down for a second, but I always regret that. Outside of that, definitely I've tried to build a community of folks that have been in my shoes before. I think, I don't want to sound arrogant or anything, but like it's a unique pressure more than I thought it would be to feel responsible for the success of a company and employees and investors and chatting. I have, you know, a handful of 
folks that have started companies and now advise or invest and all that kind of stuff that I meet with on a pretty, you know, sometimes a lot of them on a biweekly basis feel heard and to feel supported and understood. And, you know, it helps with that perspective of this is where you've been, this is where you're going. These are the things that are going well, you know, just to bring that perspective when, you know, all you're thinking about is this one thing or the most important thing that day or the week that's been hugely, hugely helpful. And my dog. Yeah. (laughs) Nice. I I love the fact that you call out routines and having that very strongly to, again, to share my personal and what I do on my personal basis. That's exactly that. That's, it's almost like me. I'm a very routine driven person to the fact or to the extent that my family and my wife will say, Hey, you're very rigid, not being flexible, but there is a reason why I'm being rigid so that everything else can work. And same thing with running. Again, as you said, it's getting those things done first. I can take care of yourself so you can start taking care of the bigger things and take care of others. Is that motto? Yeah. Fantastic. I get the same feedback. Yeah. (laughs) We need to share some stories later on, buddy. (laughs) All right. So do you listen to any podcasts during the run or is just you and your dog? Yeah, I try not to bring the phone with me or anything and just, yeah, in the morning, silence, yeah. Fantastic. All right. One final question to you is, if you were to turn back clock, in your case, it'll be your day one at Stripe when you were in the GTM role, which is as a sales rep. What advice would you give the younger Ross? I don't know, probably enjoy it more. I feel like a very serious person and like very focused. I think enjoying it more with others and kind of like sometimes taking that break I think I had some good friends that helped me do that sometimes, but doing that a bit more, I think is probably the advice I give to myself. Fantastic. On that note, thank you so much, Ross. It's been a pleasure and I'm going to root and I'm sure our community is going to root for your team, Accord Success and wishing you the very best. Appreciate that. Yeah. Thank you. Hi there. Thank you for listening to this episode of the B2B Go-To-Market Leaders podcast. I have all of the show notes and a full transcript on strative.com. S-T-R-A-T-Y-V-E.com. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get a podcast, leave a rating and a review. Your comments will help other go-to-market professionals find this podcast. <laughs>